0: Greetings. It's good to be with you this afternoon, said this afternoon, forgive me if I say this morning a few times, I'm uh, Zach Cruz. I'm the pastor of Trinity Reformed in Newcastle, and I am delighted to be here with you this afternoon. If you turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter one, verses three through eight, Colossians one, three through eight today. And let's return once again to our Lord in prayer before we go to the word and ask God's blessing. Our Father, will you open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word in Christ, we pray. Amen. If you would rise, if you're able, for the reading of God's word, Colossians chapter one, verses three through eight. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Amen. Praise God for his word. You may be seated. For several years now, I've been on a quest to perfect the art of the Thanksgiving turkey. The main complaint with the Thanksgiving turkey is it's dry. Well, if you get nothing else from this sermon, your Thanksgiving turkey does not have to be dry. I do love Thanksgiving for all the obvious reasons. It just seems right, doesn't it, to prepare... And eat a feast of thanks for all that God has done. Of course, we don't have to wait for the third Thursday in November to thank God. Paul pauses here at the very beginning of his letter to the Colossians. And he enjoys a feast of thanksgiving over what God is doing in Colossae. The question I want to consider today is how do we, as the church on the Western Slope, enjoy a feast, a harvest of Thanksgiving as we seek to be the church here on the Western Slope? What can we learn from the Apostles' uh, Thanksgiving that might help us to yield a greater harvest of gratitude here in this place? What can we begin to pray for fervently as we pray for one another? So that we, together with Paul, might say, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. About three points this evening. Sowing, harvesting, and feasting. So if we're going to reap a harvest, we first must sow. So let's begin with that. We sow, and we sow the gospel. And let's just get this out of the way. At the start, sowing, farming, is hard work. It's labor. Sowing, cultivating, harvesting in Christ's church is hard work. What farmer lays at the base of a tree next to his field with a hat over his face, straw out of his mouth and just waits for the harvest to arrive? Paul did not plant the church in Colossae. In fact, he had never even been to Colossae. This man we read about. Named Epaphras was the man who poured his heart and soul into Colossae. In verse seven, Paul calls him a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And a beloved fellow servant. He's mentioned again later in chapter four in uh, verses 12 through 13, where Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you, so a, a Colossian likely, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Apparently, at some point, Paul had left Colossae and gone to Paul, who was in prison in Rome at this point And he brought with him a report about the Colossian church. And even though Epaphras is absent from the church, Paul says his labor has not ceased. He continues to work hard for you. He's struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Epaphras may have learned his work ethic from Paul. Paul says in Colossians 1, 27 through 29, he says, Christ, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And again, in, in chapter two, verse one, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. You hear that word struggling numerous times in this epistle. I'm struggling. That word is a great word. Agonizamai. You can hear our English word agonize. One lexicon defines agonizamai this way. To engage in intense struggle involving physical or non-physical force against strong opposition. Another lexicon says to endeavor with strenuous zeal or strife. And a third, and I like this one, to be a combatant in the public games. It's a fight, it's a war, it's a struggle, it's an agonism. I wonder if we think of our lives in this way, in a warlike context. I confess I don't pray like Paul and Epaphras did. But I wonder if I prayed even remotely like this, for, for, say, living Redeemer, if we all prayed like that, what would happen? What would happen in this place? Or if we prayed like that for Trinity in Montrose or Trinity in Newcastle, what would happen if we struggled on behalf of one another? I mean, really praying, not, not just for Johnny's broken arm, which is important, but praying like Paul prayed. We have some great examples in this book of Colossians. He says that Epaphras prayed that you may stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. That's what he desired most of all for these people. Or again, in, in uh, chapter one, verses nine through 13, Paul continues to, to express his prayers for the Colossians. And this is his prayer. And just one more example, Paul calls them to pray for him in chapter four, verses two through four. He he calls them continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Do you pray for your pastor that he may make it clear, which is how he ought to speak? Maybe we could pray that for one another as churches here on the Western Slope, that God would open doors for us, for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Why don't we pray that way? Why don't I pray that way? Maybe you do. I think it's because it's hard. It's hard work. It takes mental labor. What does the church need from Christ, how can I pray that for the church? It's difficult. The work of the Christian life is hard work. I was thinking these two metaphors, kind of warlike mentality and farming. They're they're not actually all that different. Um, if you are a gardener, if you've tried to grow things here um, in the clay soil in, in the strange seasons, you know it's a war to grow things here. Am I right? Gardening is a war, war on weeds, war on weather. For me, war on deer who have no compunction about breaking the Eighth Commandment. (laughs) And when we plant our gardens and we plan ahead and we we have all these romantic visions about what it's going to look like. And as we get into the season, we begin to realize how much work there is between us and our grand vision and begin to realize we'll probably never actually get there this season. Isn't it the same in our churches? Uh, I mean, the, the romantic visions we all start out with. What it's going to look like. And as the seasons wear on, we begin to realize just how much work lies between us and our goal. Man, I thought we'd be farther along than this. This is hard work. And I bet some of you, maybe some of you here are old timers for Montrose and you know just what it was like. Well, let's start a, a reformed church here. We'll have great preaching. Reformed liturgy. It's going to be great. Finally, we'll have a reformed church on the western slope. And then, oh man, the work, the blood and sweat and tears of men and women. And now, though, their Trinity, Reformed Presbyterian, stands as a witness to God's grace through those labors, through those Tears and that blood and sweat. And as you know, the blood, sweat, and tears are not over. It'll be a fight to the end. No straw hat and straw sticking out of your mouth, no no lemonade, no coasting. It's work. That's my point. It's work. It's a great deal of painful, exhausting, agonies of Work to plant and cultivate in Christ's fields, but it's work that's worth it. And rather than recoiling, we should lean into it and lean into God's grace as we work. Now, moving on, importantly, we're going to work. What is it that we're going to sow? What are the seeds that we sow? And ultimately, it's the seeds of the gospel. Uh, I don't know if you've seen those exotic veggie kits that you can get. um, Funky veg or something they're called. Uh, there's like purple carrots and rainbow chard and, I don't know, neon rutabagas, glow-in-the-dark eggplants. I, I don't know. Um, but isn't it true, if we're honest, those are the seeds that we always want to plant first, whether in our lives or in the church. In our lives, we want? we how pretty a girl can I marry? What kind of job will, will make me the most money and make me feel most fulfilled? What, what kind of clothing style should I have? What, how can I be liked? Or in the church, uh, we start with oftentimes the wrong thing. What is the ideal music we can have? What kind of flavor of charisma should our pastor have when we call on maybe a hipster charisma or a, a cowboy or a businessman? Or, or what is our building going to look like? How will we decorate it? What kind of culture do we want to cultivate? Some of those questions are important. But I don't get the sense that Paul is very interested in, in glow-in-the-dark eggplants. For Paul, gratitude is grounded in an abundance harvest of the staple crops. An abundant harvest of the staple crops. The faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. The apostolic gospel. The basic message of the whole counsel of the word of God, that those things are the wheat and barley of a faithful and fruitful church. Paul mentions some of these fruit bearing crops in Colossae, and uh, I honestly don't see any neon rutabagas here. These are the staple crops. First, he says that it's the word of the truth, the gospel. He says, I thank God that you have heard the gospel and it is bearing fruit in you as it does in the whole world. Second, also, he calls it the grace of God in truth. He says, I thank God you understood the grace of God presented to you in truth that you learned from Epaphras. Finally, he calls Epaphras a minister of Christ, a minister of Christ. He's a faithful minister of Christ. On your behalf, and isn't Christ the source of all life and vitality in the church? He is the vine. Paul just can't help himself in, in Colossians to just expound on Christ. He says Christ is the head of the church. He says from whom the whole body nourished in knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. He says in chapter one. And again, in verse uh, chapter two, he goes on in nine and ten in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And this is the amazing part that I just can't fathom why God did this in him. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. I and mean, that's the good stuff there. That's the gospel. That's the wheat and barley. That's the staple crops. We are a people who see our need for Christ and want more of Christ and find Christ in the once for all delivered to the saints gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of God and truth. We will be a church worthy of a great feast of Thanksgiving. Here's what I see that meaning practically is a church that sees its need for Christ is nourished and strengthened Daily by the certain hope of the gospel. That church will be utterly devoted to the ordinary means of grace. The word preached. The sacraments in prayer. I know many pastors. I'm friends with many pastors. And you know the thing that encourages pastors most. I hear it often. These people are hungry for the word. There are many things that can encourage gospel ministry, but things that bring gratitude to the heart of faithful ministers. Is first, when a person is as committed or more committed to their own growth and sanctification, than the pastor is for them. And the second and close behind is when that growth and maturity begins to spill over into the life around them. It's, it's, it's the effect of the word sowing the seeds of the gospel. So sowing the genuine staple crops of the word of truth, the gospel. That's the hard labor. But if the result is Christ, then it's worth the effort. And inevitably, it will yield a bountiful harvest. Which leads us to our second point. What is the harvest? Paul identifies some things that are a harvest for us. Again, as as an amateur gardener, I'm personally, personally not that interested in flowers. I know they're beautiful, and you know their beauty is is their value. But for me, I want plants with fruit. I want something I can heft on the bowl, in a bowl on the table. I, I want to cook it and eat it. That's just me. So, what is the fruit we see in verse five of this? You have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you as in, indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Uh, Paul identifies three fruits that come through the hard work of scattering the seeds of the gospel, and they are sequential. In other words, one begets another begets another. And we're actually familiar with them from 1 Corinthians 13. These three remain faith, hope and love. You see all three of them here. Verse three, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So just follow the the chronological sequence of events. First, the Colossians hear the gospel from the faithful minister of Papyrus. Second, they believe the word of the gospel as it was taught to them. they have faith in Jesus Christ. Third, they learn from Epaphras of the hope, the hope of eternal inheritance. Fourth, eternal hope begets love of brother. And fifth, finally, Paul hears from Epaphras and rejoices in thanksgiving over what God has done. That's the sequence of events. And of course, our conversions all look different from person to person, but hearing... Faith, hope, love, praise. That, that's generally a pattern we can rely on in the Christian life. So let's look at these, these three things. First, first, faith. He says in verse four, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And what is faith, really? you ever tried to answer that? That's a hard question to answer, to define faith. Um, my brother and I used to play this video game. We didn't play video games a lot, but we played this skateboarding game. And uh, one of the jumps was this balcony several stories high. And you couldn't see the bottom from where you where you'd jump off. And it was named in the game, uh, the leap of faith. That's how faith is viewed oftentimes in our culture, isn't it? Just a leap in the dark. But here's what faith is at its most most basic level. Faith is believing God. Not just believing in God, but believing God. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. But how can we believe God if we don't have a word from God? If we do not have promises of God. And isn't that Paul's point in Romans 10? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith, faith says, I deserve wrath and hell. Yet God has promised all the blessings of Christ. Blood-bought forgiveness of sins, a robe of shining righteousness, an eternal inheritance of everlasting life in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. Faith says, I don't deserve it, but I'll take it. I'll take the promises of God. I'll believe God on that. I'll reach out with this empty hand, no merit in myself at all, and lay hold of that promise for myself. That's. What faith is. I will believe God. You see, we cannot have that kind of faith without first having a word from God, the word of the gospel. Next, hope. Verse five says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. I think hope is perhaps the most underplayed of these three fruits. Um, and hopes is similarly misunderstood as a sort of blind optimism, like I hope mom and dad give me the right Legos for my birthday. Can you imagine if that were the kind of hope that we have in the gospel? Well, I hope Jesus actually comes back. Man, I hope I hope his sacrifice was good enough. I hope God won't let me down. I mean, that, that's a miserable hand wringing life if that's what our hope is. Hope that is grounded on the promises of God is certain hope. When I think of this kind of hope, I think of 1 Peter verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's certain hope. Kept by God in heaven for us. Finally, love. Hope produces love. He says in verse four, the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Uh, I think if hope is the least played of these fruits, love is the most, obviously. Love is talked about the most because it's so compelling. You can imagine these Colossians who were Uh, pagan people then they heard the gospel and now strangely they've begun to care really care about the people in in Laodicea and Hierapolis and to care about the people in Jerusalem and Rome like their brothers and sisters all of a sudden the apostle John explaining why he's writing about Jesus in his letter 1 John puts it like this that which we have seen and heard and we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I mean, that's just the most wonderful picture of unity in the church. That's what I love about what we're doing here this evening. I was thinking we call it a combined or a joint worship service. We just call it a worship service. Are we not the church of God? All this fruit born out of uh, the simple proclamation of the gospel makes Paul very happy, very thankful. After the work is done, the growing season has yielded its fruit and all has been harvested. It's time to celebrate what God has done. It's time to enjoy the fruit of the labor and give thanks to God for his abundant provision. Which leads us finally to the final point, which is the feast. Paul says again at the beginning, verse three, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. He's thankful. He's thankful for what God has done. What a joy it is to labor in Christ's field because in the end we're privileged to bring glory to God through it. And what higher calling can a mere sinner have than to bring glory to God? It's we who plant, we who water, but God gives the growth. We could slave away diligently our whole lives, but without God, our labors are ultimately nothing. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborer labors in vain. Isn't that why Paul says in verse eight and Epaphras made known to us your love in the spirit. This is not a love that came ultimately from themselves. The love of the brethren, which is born out of hope, which is born out of faith which is born out of the word preached is ultimately from the Holy Spirit. Without the regenerating power of the Spirit, bringing dry bones to life, turning hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, bringing light to blind eyes, we would never learn to love each other. Out of our own wisdom or our own volition. And that's why, though we spend our whole lives toiling Agonies of mine cultivating the harvest at the end of the day when we take stock. All the credit, all the glory goes to God. It's it's all God's work. I'll give you some homework because I didn't hit on this hard. Look for the Trinity in this passage when you get home. It's God's work. Isn't that why Paul says in chapter one? Verses 28 and 29, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It almost feels paradoxical. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Similarly, in First Corinthians, Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am this grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. It is hard work, but the grace of God is with us. He yields the fruit. So praise God. Thank God for the grace of God in us, even here on the Western Slope. Perhaps maybe to us, the present harvest doesn't feel as ideal in our minds as we might have thought. But but look around here in this room. Perhaps there are some men and women here tonight who who, many years ago were were dreaming of a day like this. When God's church would be represented in this way on the western slope. And Look, here we are. Praise God. Thank God. Some of these men and women, perhaps they have preceded us in glory. They labored labored diligently to see a faithful expression of the church of Jesus Christ flourishing on the western slope of Colorado. And they would look at this gathering and, and say, we always thank God when we pray for you. Well, what a bountiful harvest. Soli Deo Gloria. Amen.